Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. There's increasing pressure to keep certain books out of public schools and libraries. Many of the targeted books are written by people of color, including Native American authors. Some book ban organizers complain that the books offer a viewpoint different than conventional colonial historical narrative. Today we'll hear about Native books that have made it to the banned list and what the trend is for flagging books because of their critical viewpoints. We'll talk about it coming up right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. A federal judge has ordered Lyman County, South Dakota, to come up with a plan for the November elections that gives the Lower Brule tribe a chance to elect its preferred county commissioner candidates. The tribe has been negotiating with the county to establish Native majority districts. The commission came up with a compromise but says it cannot comply until the 2024 elections because of time constraints. Federal District Judge Roberta Lang says that would leave a plan in place for 2022 that violates the Federal Voting Rights Act. Victoria Wicks reports. For 30 years, Lyman County has been one voting district with five at-large commissioners. That setup clearly violated the Federal Voting Rights Act because it diluted the vote of lower rural citizens, about 40% of the voting population. To rectify the federal violation, Lyman County decided to establish two voting districts, one of them containing a native majority and two commission seats. But county officials said they could not implement the new plan until 2024, and so Lower Brule filed a federal lawsuit to force the county to act in time for the November 2022 election. At a federal court hearing in late July, county officials testified that they needed to reconfigure software and verify addresses of Native voters who use P.O. boxes or partial street addresses. But tribal manager Tim Azure testified that the Lower Brule Reservation contains primarily HUD housing, which has established addresses. In an exchange with Michael Cotter, one of the lawyers representing Lower Brule, Azure said the tribe has the ability to match 911 addresses to physical locations, but the county had not reached out to the tribe for help. The county has indicated that it may have a few hundred addresses to verify. How long would you expect it to take the tribe to verify that many addresses? I think it would probably take us eight to, to 16 uh, hours. On August 11th, Judge Roberto Lang granted the tribe's request for a preliminary injunction and gave Lyman County commissioners seven days to come up with a remedial plan or have the court create one for them. For National Native News, I'm Victoria Wicks in Rapid City, South Dakota. The Canadian government has apologized to a Saskatchewan Cree nation for what's being described as an assimilation colony scheme. As Dan Karpinchuk reports, the Crown Indigenous Relations Minister delivered the national apology on behalf of the federal government. The Papikis' Cree Nation was at the heart of a federal scheme that breached treaty agreements by setting up an experimental farm colony that took over the community's land and helped to assimilate Indigenous people. It was called the File Hill Colonies Scheme. And between 1897 and 1954, participants in the colony were chosen for the experiment after graduating from residential schools and industrial schools. They were forced to work on the community farm and were not allowed to return to their home communities where they originally lived. Indigenous Relations Minister Mark Miller. 
At the time, Canada claimed wrongly that this scheme would enhance agricultural productivity, but we now understand that this was an experiment that was invasive in nature and an experiment in radical social engineering. And for this, we are deeply sorry. The apology was welcomed by the Papikas' chief and council. Many of the band members had been trying for years to get that apology, as well as compensation for the wrongs linked to the colony. The band accepted a $150 million settlement in August of last year, but many members are still searching for answers about their origins and identity issues. Miller says the government hopes the apology can help the process of healing. For National Native News, I'm Dan Karpinchuk. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Sanofsky Chambers Law, championing tribal sovereignty and Native American rights since 1976, from opioids litigation to treaty rights to tribal self-governance, with offices in Washington, D.C., New Mexico, California, and Alaska. Sanofsky Chambers Law. The Indian Arts and Crafts Board promotes Indian artists of federally recognized tribes through its online source directory. Information on this no-charge opportunity available at doi.gov IACB, who support this program. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Sean Spruce. Books deemed controversial are getting pulled from library shelves. The American Library Association states there were 729 attempts last year to ban books from libraries, schools, and universities. Books challenged in recent years include themes involving sexuality, gender, and race. Native authored books are among those that are targeted. They include Tracy Sorrell's We Are Grateful and two books by guests we'll hear from today. Fry Bread, and An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People. We'll also speak with Native librarians about the trend to limit books with Native viewpoints. We want to hear from our listeners as well. 1-800-996-2848 is the number to join today's conversation about banned books. You can also comment on our website or our Facebook and Twitter social media pages. Our Twitter handle is 180099-NATIVE. Our first guest is on the line in Palo Alto, California. Dr. Debbie Reese is the founder of the American Indians and Children's Literature blog. She is Nambe Pueblo. Debbie, welcome back to NAC. Thank you for having me back. Debbie, let's get into this conversation here, the growing trend in this country to ban books. What's driving it? Conservative politics that feel that is composed largely of white people who feel threatened by facts and truths about American people and American history. And there are books that are native authored that have been banned in recent years. What books are we talking about? We are, I've been tracking this on my blog and particularly what is happening is that these conservative groups are drawing up lists that have, uh, that are composed of books that make, a kid feel uncomfortable, and those ones that are specific to Native people are ones that have truths in them about American history, 
but that these parents um, in these groups feel will make their white kid uncomfortable. So um, there are far more good books today than there have been in the past. Some districts, like the one in Pennsylvania, in York, Pennsylvania, they drew up a list of good books that included the book that we adapted, The Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People, and Kevin's book, um, Fry Bread, and several others. So that was a good book list that got hijacked by these conservative groups um, who did not think kids should have books of this kind that tell truths about um, the role of the United States government with regard to Native people. So that's how our book ended up on that list that got circulated and is now kind of everywhere, and Kevin's book as well. Now, Debbie, your book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States for Young People, it's on this list. And other than just some of these conservative um, efforts to to target books like this, is there anything specific, any specific topics or issues that are raised in the book that they found especially problematic to go to the great length to, to ban it? Well, the interesting thing about our book being on that list is I, don't, I have not seen anyone raise a legitimate concern about it. It just gets a blanket, this kid teaches my kid how to hate America um, or hate America, the American government. There isn't any concern raised about any Native book that is specific to the content. So it's kind of this blanket condemnation issued by people who have not read the book. Now, if they had actually read our book, they probably would pull out the um, passages where we talk about George Washington being a monster or a murderer or um, Abraham Lincoln having um, signed those orders to execute all those Dakota people. We have those truths in there. And if those conservative groups would read our book, they would excerpt that and it would be all over the place. But that's not happening. These are just blanket condemnations by people who have not read the book. And I'm sure that would happen with Kevin's book, too. As soon as they saw Kevin's book with the parts about the Navajo um, Long Walk, they would excerpt that, too. Well, let's talk with Kevin now. He's a guest on our show, and, and he certainly does understand what it means to, to have a book banned because he did write a book that was banned, as you mentioned there, Debbie. Uh, Kevin Mallard is an author and professor of law at Syracuse University. He's a member of the Seminole Nation of Oklahoma, and he's talking with us now from Vermont. Kevin, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Kevin, you wrote a children's book. It's titled Fry Bread. It was written back in 2019. It won an American Library Association Award as well as other honors. Why did a school district feel they needed to ban it? Well, as Debbie was saying, there is a movement uh, by conservative groups to eradicate certain strains of information in curriculum. And I think it joins part of this larger opposition to something called critical race theory. And as Debbie was saying, most of the people that would oppose these or, or that are forwarding these book bans or that are opposed to critical race theory have never read it. And I myself, as a law professor, have written articles that would be considered critical race theory. And the funniest thing that I always think about this is that not a single one of these people has ever read any of my articles. They'd never have read any of these other academic articles. So it's a lot of joining in on like talking points, something that you might see 
on a news program or on a certain uh, website, and then they get this information and parrot it over and over. Because if you would see in my book, Fry Bread, it's just a book about families cooking food together. And then on one page, it does say, this is the origin of fry bread. We were removed from ancestral lands, and then we had to make new food from what we had. And that's exactly what it says. And then some people object to that, because then it's not going along with like, you know, a current you know, uh, uncontroversial narrative. I wouldn't see this as controversy at all. It's just the truth. So the origin of fry bread, you think that was, was the main issue? Cause I mean, I, I, I saw, I, I saw your book, you did a video and, and you read the book and it was, it was, it was a beautiful book. It <laughs> really cute. And I, I was just scratching my head like, okay, what, I'm not getting any of this here. Like, how could this be offensive other than, I mean, it's obviously, um, uh, a blended family. Right. That's obviously a blended family, but that's there's so many blended families in Indian country. So I, I, I was still at a loss. So you really think that was it? Just the origin of fry bread, the origin of fry bread. And then also the the characters themselves. Everyone in the book is a person of color or has native ancestry. So then if it makes kids feel bad, if it makes white kids feel bad about seen other people in the book. That's why these parents are taking it away. Even in, you know, the 1960s and 1970s when we had Ezra Jack Keats writing something as innocuous as the snowy day, right? You know, the little black boy who's marching through the streets of New York or a big city, that was offensive to some parents because then it was not a white character because then I guess if you're bringing a different colored face into the picture, then in some way it is telling these kids that they are doing something wrong or that they are not being represented on the book, which was why people like Debbie and myself wrote these books in the first place, because Indian kids weren't getting their fair share of great representation in literature. So this mm -hmm. is what we were trying to do is to be not even to be inclusive, right? It is just we are representing our stories as they should be told. And then it's almost as if these parents are objecting to the existence of indigenous and people of color in literature to begin with. Kevin, this was a school district in Pennsylvania. Is this the only school district that has banned fry bread or are there others? This is the only one that I know about, but when you were saying there were 700 or so of them, there might be others, but I've been looking on the internet to see if there are others and I don't, uh, haven't seen anything, but I would say I have kind of a weird take on these book bands. It's actually great for access for other people to see the book, because then once a book gets on a banned list, it becomes more popular, right? right? So then it's these reindeer games that some of these school districts are doing. There's Amazon, right? There's Barnes and Noble. There is a public library that they could go to. If it's taken out of the school, it 
will limit the access that the teachers will have, right? That the students will have in their school library, but there are other places that they could get it. There, it's even on YouTube. Uh, there are all kinds of read alouds that people have. So whenever there's a book ban, and I'm sure Debbie could attest to this, book bans are always great for sales also, right? <laughs> right, <laughs> right. This huge, big spike, uh, you know, because then once a book is banned, it tells, it's almost like a signaling for some people to say like, oh, this is a bad book, don't buy it. But for the majority of other book readers, they want to see what it is about the book, <laughs> whether this is Catcher in the Rye, whether this is, um, you know, I am Rosa Parks. They want to see now what these messages that are being conveyed, and all the time these messages are positive. So it just makes the book it, – it kicks it off one person's list. It puts it on somebody else's. We're speaking now with Kevin Millard. He is an author, and he's talking about his book that was banned by a school district. The book is titled Fry Bread. We're also talking with Dr. Debbie Reese. She's also an author that experienced a book ban. We've got a couple other guests on the show, librarians, that are going to talk more about this issue of books being banned. We're going to learn more about the kind of books that are being banned, why they're being banned, what the issues are. we got lots more to talk about on our show. If you want to Call in with a question or a comment, 1-800-996-2848. Looking forward to having our guests as well as our listeners participate on today's show. Give us a call. We'll be right back. Elvis Presley has an enduring appeal for many Native Americans more than four decades after his death. He's even inspired a number of Native collectors and tribute performers. We'll explore the lasting draw Elvis's music and persona brings to the entertainment world. That's on the next Native America Calling. Support by Indigenous Pact, a healthcare consulting company working to create health equity in Indian country. Indigenous Pact offers solutions to fit the needs of your tribe. Their team, experts in healthcare strategy, policy, and innovation, provides a one of a kind plan to solve the issues specific to your community. Indigenous Pact works to create three primary outcomes healing spaces, healthy citizens, and sustainable economies. More information at indigenouspact.com. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're tackling the issue of banning books, and we want to hear from you today. Are you in a city or school district where books have been banned? Are you in a campaign to ban a book yourself? What do you think about efforts to censor classic children's authors like Dr. Seuss and Roald Dahl, who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? All opinions are welcome. Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. You can also email us at comments at nativeamericacalling.com. And before we went to break, we were listening to Kevin Millard, and he was talking about how a book ban can really be a mixed blessing for an author. Uh, it can really drive book sales and get a lot of attention going towards a book. And let's go back to our, our other guest, our other author, Dr. Debbie Reese. And 
Debbie, one thing I, I wanted to also address is that some of the books that are being banned are not always banned uh, based on a prejudice or some kind of a prejudicial issue. Uh, as an example, Sherman Alexie's book has been banned, and possibly it's because of his past uh, personal improprieties. So uh, w- what's the answer there with regard to an author like Sherman Alexie, who has fallen from grace for some of his personal actions in the past, allegedly? And it's resulting in in some of his books, which are are true classics in Indian country, being banned. Well, that's a tough one, isn't it? I think that well, when when his young adult diary um, book came out, I, I wrapped my arms around that book and I really enjoyed it. And I think it came out at a time where we were desperately looking for native writers, um, and that seemed to be one. But since then. I've reread it and talked to lots of people about it and see things in it that I didn't see um, when I first read it, like the the, uh, the over um, presence of alcoholism and the way that he talks about alcoholism itself in the book and subsequent to that. So um, he has a lot of power and he has influenced a lot of librarians to believe that if a book doesn't have an alcoholic character in it, that it's not an accurate book and they shouldn't buy it. That's not true. Alcoholism occurs in native populations and non-native populations at the same rate, but of course it gets tagged as being something specific to native people. So I have um, withdrawn my support of of him and his work, not because of the presence of, of alcohol in the book, but the way he talks about it in a way that suggest that any native writer who has a book that has no alcoholic uncle or dad in it is not an authentic book because that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, but for, for what happened with his book is it was, it's a really interesting conversation about the native response to what happened when the sexual harassment story came out, because we hold people in our communities to a, to a space where we want them to be helpful to our communities. We want them to be helpful to our kids. We want them to be role models. And suddenly we had this huge cloud over him that released other information, drove other information about his behaviors, none of which works in the native community. Our kids need affirmation. Our kids need good role models. And he that wasn't there. And so the American Indian Library Association withdrew its award from his book. Mm-hmm. Um, so with, with that book and, and it being banned, I don't, I don't really know if it's been banned. I, I, I do want to circle back to that at some point, that being challenged and being banned are two different things. Censored, and perhaps, book, might be a better word to use, maybe. Yeah, I'm um, not even sure about that, because in the, in the library literature, a parent can challenge a book. Mm-hmm. That's eight, over 800 books have been challenged right now. How many have actually been boxed up and removed is unknown. Um, so like with Kevin's book, that was challenged, and so it became a story. Student activists there said, bring that book back, bring the other books back, and they were brought back. So they, were, they are not banned from the school library or the classrooms. They are there. They were okay. challenged. Okay, thanks for that clarification. And Debbie, I also want to talk about a book that you have concerns about, uh, Little House on the Prairie. And those are, again, I mentioned Dr. Seuss and some of these other children's classics. That's definitely a classic. And um, and you have made efforts to have that book drop from children's reading lists. And, and why is that? Well, 
I believe in the power of storytelling. And that is rooted in who we are as Native people, but also in um, across the world. Story shapes how we think about the world. So when I look at a book, I definitely look at the way that Native people are presented, because if the history is wrong, if it is, is colored by stereotypical ways of speaking or writing or depicting us, that's not okay. We have way too much of that to contend with already. And when a teacher is using that in the classroom, as an educational tool, that teacher is miseducating her students. So I come at my criticism as an educator who is aware of the history of miseducation of who we are. Mm -hmm. Well, let's go back to Kevin. And, and Kevin, uh, do you think it's ever appropriate to ban a children's book at a school in any context? What's your thought on that? I actually do not. I, I wouldn't say that I'm a, you know, a huge free speech advocate, right? Westco, Westboro Baptist Church come and protest people's funerals uh, kind of person. But I do would, I would support something that would say if there has been offensive language or offensive depictions, those can be used as a teaching tool. But it, I, I, I agree with what Debbie is saying, right, where we don't want those misrepresentations to be presented as factual. But then if we could use those misrepresentations to say this is how people were depicted in the past and it is problematic. So you could have something – I have small children who like to watch Disney+. Plus, and a lot of those old cartoons that they have on Disney+, Plus, like – Steamboat Mickey, um, you know, some of these older movies, they always have a what is essentially a warning label on there. These have outdated misrepresentations that might be harmful or hateful to certain groups of, uh, of people. And so I think if we can be honest with children and honest with the viewers and the readers to say not all the time – have these people been presented positively? And here's why. Okay. Here's an example of what it looks like, and that this can be helpful in a positive way as it has been harmful. Okay, so you see it as a teachable moment. And, uh, but Kevin, what about a, a children's book that, that really has a, a controversial history to it? And, and the book I'm thinking of, there was a book that got Amazon in hot water a few years ago. It's a book, uh, it's an older book. It's, it's titled The Fable of the Ducks and the Hens. And it was written by a gentleman by the name of George Lincoln Rockwell, who was a founder of the American Nazi Party. Uh, the term white power has been attributed to him. And it's a story that's fraught with anti-immigration sentiment. It's told through the tale of these ducks that, that bring in these refugee hens. And it's just, it's littered with some of this sentiment. And do you think a, a children's book like that should be should we take it to that step like like Debbie explains where it actually needs to be banned or or you know that that clear that clarification between a book that's maybe not on a list but actually banned? What do you think about a book like that? Where does where, what is what do we need to do with it? Well, first, like this is the first time that I have ever heard of that book, which I think is a good thing, right? It hasn't made it into school curriculums. It's not on or at least that I'm not aware of, um, not on a major list. And usually, at least in more modern times, it wouldn't have even made it out of a reputable publishing house. So if 
that book exists, you know, like there could be all kinds of books that are self-published, that are published by small racist presses. They can have their audience out there, but if that is coming into a school, I think, or a library that would be publicly available, that kids could go in and, you know, pull from the shelves. I think also that would be a teachable moment of saying, this book is trash. <laughs> this mm-hmm. shouldn't be in the library in the first place. Um, I mean, me personally, I I kind of like to see what those books say to see how harmful they are and then form an opinion that is reflexive of that, that goes in the complete opposite direction. I don't think I would want to show something like that to my children, but then I wouldn't want to keep it from them or to my students that some books like that have been written. We have purposes in writing these books. We want to forward a certain type of information. We want to have positive representations of Native people, of Black people, of Latinos and Asians and multiracial people. Those people on that side of the coin want to forward an idea of these people are substandard. They are not positive additions to our communities. I think we could use those if they do get into hands of children. Also, what you were saying as a teachable moment. And Kevin, I want to ask you, like I mentioned earlier, Dr. Seuss has has come under fire for uh, the portrayal illustrations uh, with how Asian people were illustrated in some of those old books. And uh, Roald Dahl, who wrote Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, James and the Giant Peach, those books have been scrutinized. And I think for a lot of us, and I'm a parent, I have an eight-year-old daughter. I read Dr. Seuss as a kid. I read Dr. Seuss to her. We've read Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. And I, I I, I think the question is, when do we know, when, when, when should we cons- be concerned that these books are problematic and we need to take a closer look, like you described, that teachable moment? When does that, when does that need to happen? This is when I think that prefaces and author's notes uh, or the editor's notes really help out, especially if a parent wouldn't be able to recognize when those misrepresentations occur. Those resources would be there at the front of that book saying, here's the history of this. Here is the context which this came from. Here is why he was writing this. These were his other opinions on other groups. And then always, you know, everything that we have about books, they're there as holding bodies of knowledge. And then this Mm -hmm. is something that is meant to learn from. So even those books, yeah, I mean, upstairs uh, right now in my kids' room is the Roald Dahl complete collection. He loves those books. (laughs) Right, right. When we get to those sections, it's always like, let's take a little detour here and ask why he's representing these people in that way. So I'm never one to shy away from the hard moments. uh, let's, let me. Okay, I'm sorry, Kevin. I, okay, yeah. and, and I, have, I apologize for interrupting you, but I want to bring Debbie back into the conversation because I want to ask her, Debbie, how do you feel about that in terms of uh, 
taking these as teachable moments and and Kevin mentions, you know, read, reading a preface and is that enough to just have like kind of a warning label or a preface attached to a book and thinking of it as a teachable moment or do we need to to be more proactive and take a take the next step like we're talking about today? Well, <clears throat> when it's in a classroom, it's a wholly different space than when it's a library or a parent's um, home. I think in a classroom, it, it takes on an educational um, framework. And when the, one, if you're going to bring one of the one of the uh, Dr. Seuss books into the classroom, and you're hoping that the teacher knows that those are stereotypical images in them, your hope may be misplaced because a lot of people don't see those images of Asian people with slanted eyes as a problem. Um, and of course, Asian people see that as a problem. So if a, teach, you, a teacher has to know that the problem is there to begin with. Um, and if they don't, then they're using the books uncritically and Asian kids in the classroom are dealing with yet another instance of, of hurt. And non-Asian kids are seeing stereotypes that exist affirmed by the teacher in their classroom. So I think what happens inside a classroom is really important. It's really different from what happens in other spaces where one-on-one uh, -on -one, an adult can point out to their child, as Kevin does, what's wrong with that particular text. I so think the, the setting doesn't have to use those. Yeah, the okay. setting matters. The setting, a classroom versus a library versus a home. Okay, that's a, that's a really important point to make. Thank you, Debbie. Let's bring another voice into our conversation now. Joining us from Idaho is Mandy Harris. She was a children's librarian for more than 10 years and is currently a PhD student in information science at the University of Washington. She's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Mandy, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Mandy, you've been on the front lines of this issue as a children's librarian. What's it like being contacted by someone who wants to ban or challenge a book? You know, it's it's something that you prepare for, and um, because you know it's going to happen. Because as Debbie mentioned, it's part of the protocols of any library. There are processes for people to challenge books, um, as is their right, and then there's a whole process that it goes through where people can engage with the material. We make sure people have read it, um, and then the board looks at it. Depending on the library protocols, you can have a board, you have a community group look at it. Um, but those moments when a patron calls. Um, it's really important as a librarian to have a relationship with your community and to have a relationship with your patron so that when they have a concern about the, a book, they can come to you in a very human way and you can talk through it together. One thing that I noticed happening over the past few years, um, especially with the pandemic and what's been called the great sort, so many people moving um, around the country, is um, a lot of those community relationships have broken down. And so you might have somebody coming into the area who finds a book, they assume it's going to be a conservative area, um, especially people who move into Idaho are assuming it's going to have one mindset and they aren't going to encounter any information that runs counter to what they assume the area is like. And so when they do, for example, find an LGBTQ book on the shelf, it comes as a shock to them and maybe they're new to the area and they don't have that relationship with the librarian. And so sometimes it can have... Um, less of that, that human approach and more of a combative approach. And so when that happens, the goal for any librarian is to listen, always listen to the patron, listen to their concerns. And then usually what I would do, I would always ask, well, what types of books are you looking for? Um, and I would explain that you have every right to read any book you want, but you also have every right to not read a book you don't want to read. 
So let's find you the books you do want to read. Um, because a lot of times what's happening here is people see a book that they don't like and they don't want anybody else to read it. Um, and so what I would always try to do with those patrons is, well, let's find you the books that work for you. Um, and a lot of times what they would assume is that the library didn't have those books because they didn't see them on the shelves. And then we would explain, well, that's because those books are very popular and they're checked out. And so making them feel heard and affirmed and finding what works for them, which over the past few years has become more and more difficult um, because of this, this national groundswell to remove a lot of these books. We're speaking with Mandy Harris, and she was a children's librarian for more than a decade, and she's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. She just joined our discussion, and she's talking about what it's like to be on the front lines there when somebody calls a library, contacts the library, and wants to challenge or censor a book, and words of advice for how to deal with that. Folks, if you got a question, 1-800-996-2848, what are you waiting for? We want to hear your thoughts about books being censored books being dropped from reading lists, books being banned. It's an increasing issue in Native America, and we're talking about it today. Give us a call. We'll be right back. Program support by Amerind. For 35 years, Indian Country has put its trust in Amerind, providing insurance coverage, strengthening Native American communities, Protecting tribal sovereignty and keeping dollars in Indian country are Amarin's priorities. More information on property, liability, workers' compensation, and commercial auto needs at Amarind.com. That's A-M-E-R-I-N-D.com. You're listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're hearing from authors and librarians today about their thoughts on recently banned book lists. There's still time to join our conversation. Call us at 1-800-996-2848. We want to know, were you surprised to learn that a favorite book from your childhood has now been deemed offensive or inappropriate to contemporary readers? Let us know. 1-800-99-NATIVE. We've got a caller on the line right now, Cassie, listening in Nashville, Tennessee. Cassie, hello. Hello, Sean. Hi, Cassie. Great to hear you. Thank you for having me on the program. Absolutely, Cassie. What's on your mind? Well, actually, this uh, topic is very close to my heart. I studied to be a librarian many, many moons ago, um, and I currently have two or three book clubs I'm uh, involved with on Zoom, and one of them is a children's book, a uh, native book club. And when I saw the book uh, Fry Bread, that it was being banned, I was like, I was in tears. And and um, I just couldn't believe it because I've read that to, to children that I read to. And then uh, the other thing in reference to the library is um, I'm, I'm really proud to say that the National uh, Public Library has put out a new library card, and it reads, I read banned books, and I was just delighted with that, and um, they put out a whole display 
of all of the band books, and I think I've read most of them. So uh, it's it's just so close to my heart, and I it, it you know makes me feel sad that 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 these beautiful books, especially fried bread, you know, it's about family, you know. Right. Uh, so um, and then the other thing was I just saw something on the news today on one of the web uh, native websites about a public school system in Oklahoma that has decided not to teach from the killers of the flower moon um, due, due to their uh, fear of losing their license if they teach any of that to their students. It's like, I, I, I'm, just, I'm just shocked. You know, it's, it's our history, and it's important to learn. So that's all I have to say. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Cassie, for calling in with those comments and that information about uh, what's going on down there in Oklahoma with regard to Killers of the Flower Moon. Let's go back to Mandy. And, and Mandy, uh, what's your advice? Uh, someone, they go to a school or they live in a community, they go to a public library, and they feel that a book is being targeted unfairly for being banned or censorship. What do they need to do? Um, you know, it's really those loudest voices that are really, um, I've found the ones that are very, the loudest about banning books, um, they're a small number. They're just really loud um, and they tend to dominate the conversation. And so if you're concerned about a book um, being challenged or banned, speak up in support of that book. Um, um, show support to librarians um, because especially over the past couple of years, I know colleagues have um, really endured a lot um, with um, books being banned and challenged, they've had personal information revealed online. I've had colleagues have their home addresses revealed online. Um, imagine if libraries in Montana, they closed for a day last week because when they were opening up and they took books out of their book drop, they found that the books had been destroyed by firearms. So they closed for a day um, to investigate and see why and see what the safety concerns were around that. So these um, challenges and bans against books um, that are happening, they, they consume you know, time and energy with that, but there's also an emotional toll that it takes on the librarians. When we order these books in, we're doing it with the best of our knowledge. We use resources like American Indians and Children's Literature, um, like professional journals. Uh, we take time to consider each book and look at the reviews, what the professional literature has to say, and we also consider our communities and the diverse needs of our communities because we know our patrons really well, especially as a children's librarian. You get to know families, you get to know kids and their needs. And so if people would like to show support, speak up for books. I know um, in Southern Idaho, in Nampa School District, they removed around two dozen books from the school district this past spring. And they said they were removing them forever even though not all of them had been analyzed, but the community rallied around those titles and made them available uh, to the readers, the young readers of that community. So speak up, show support to your librarians. They love their community and they need to know their community loves them. Mandy, just to, uh, what you said just really shocked me. So you tell me up in Montana that some people checked out some books that they didn't agree with, uh, took them out to a shooting range, filled them full of holes and then put them back in the, the depository for the librarians to deal you know, with? I don't know the details of it. I do know that I saw on Imagine It's Libraries, they posted, because I follow, there are one, um, I had a friend who worked there, I follow all of the regional libraries that are close to me to see the wonderful work they're doing. And they had posted that they were closed for a day and they hadn't revealed why. 
And then they had another uh, post saying that they had found, um, they didn't, you know, there weren't any explanations, just books that had been damaged by firearms. And then okay. they determined that it was safe to reopen. So I don't know all of the details on that. I only know what um, they have shared. Well, let's uh, hear from somebody else who has experience in, in library science. Speaking with us now from Rayford, North Carolina, is Lynette Dial. She is a library supervisor for Hope County Library. She's Lumbee. Lynette, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Well, Annette, let's talk more about how this issue is impacting libraries. And there was a library or there is a library in Michigan currently that's in danger of closing down because it lost funding over its refusal to ban certain books. Now, do you worry about this happening to other libraries across the country? Well, I think the impact of that happening is more likely in small rural areas. Um, and I hesitate to say it, but I do think that uh, conservatism is, is, has great influence in those small areas. But I, I myself was reading that particular article, but I was so impressed with the community members that decided to champion the library and uh, do an online fundraising in order to reinstate the, or reinstate monies for the budget to keep that library open. That was a wonderful thing because for as many individuals that you have that would like to ban books or have a fear of that information getting out to their children, you have other people who realize that freedom of information and access to information is it's one of the most democratic things. It makes libraries one of the most democratic institutions in this country. Lynette, has your library ever received pushback for either banning a book or not banning a book? We, we have received uh, requests from individuals uh, that books be removed from the shelf. We have. We, we definitely have. And I would... Uh, refer back to what Mandy said, when you are a librarian of a small community, you know your individuals that you're dealing with every day, you know your children, you know the adults, you know the young adults, and you basically know how to approach them. And the best way to approach them, she was positively right, the best way to approach them is to listen to what they have to say about the material and make them feel heard, but in a gracious way say that they can also um, follow the procedure to complain about these books, uh, asking removal for the books, but that most likely that may not happen. They, they have to be aware that it may not happen, and, and we here would definitely say we support uh, numerous banned books. I can't really think of any. That one was not successful. It was taken to our board, our local board, um, and it was reviewed, and the board did support our decision to keep the book on the shelf. But the thing is, you know, that you can offer to make concessions like moving that book from a shelf and putting it behind the counter so that it has to be specifically requested. Mm. Um that that is an alternative um 
And, you know, if you're willing to make that concession, then I think they need to understand that, okay, maybe they need to take a step back as well. Okay. Well, Lynette, also I wanted to ask you, because there's this trend of people not using libraries as, as much in the past, and there's so many other ways to access books and to read. Do we need to factor that into our discussion as well, just people not using libraries as much? And, and what about folks that are getting their books, maybe homeschooling? They're not going to schools, they're not using libraries like in years past. How about those folks with regard to some of these problematic titles? Well, um, we do have a very large homeschooling community here. And while they do access much of their information online, there is just certain material and certain aspects of homeschooling that just can't be done online. Uh, you have to come to a library or you have to get to a place where you can physically access books for certain curriculums that you are teaching your children. And our community here, our homeschooling community, takes a lot of uh, opportunity to come and visit and bring homeschool groups here uh, for different activities. Uh, and, and we appreciate that group. But yes, you can definitely say that now and in the future, there's going to be much more accessing of um, material online uh, and even schooling online. But I don't think that that is going to destroy the libraries in communities because good libraries are often the hub of community activities. They're not limited to books. They are, and, and of course, they in many aspects, in many small communities, they offer access to the internet uh, and online services that they do not have at home. So I don't think you're going to see a falling away of library services in okay. the overall view. Okay. And Lynette, is there a growing effort to improve visibility for Native authors in public libraries? I think so. I think so. But again, uh, you have to consider what uh, Native authors are going to write about. They are going to write about the truth of their Native communities. And some of those Native communities, that, that truth in that Native community is harsh. So um, if, they're, if they're writing that and they're writing the truth of it because they want to uh, expose other people to the reality of that type of life, um, then they're going to they're gonna be expressing some, some really harsh things. I, I wanted to bring up another book, uh, There, There by Tommy Orange. Now, There, There is a, is a violent book. Uh, it has many instances in it of violence, but it is, a, it is a wonderful book. It also has many instances of what the powwow is about, what family relations are about, how making connection is important, and how it enhances identity of individuals. That powwow is a big source of identification. Mm -hmm. um, the violence that exists, uh, and uh, Ms. Reese was talking about 
uh, in reference to um, Chairman Alexi's book, the violence that was was there in that book. A lot of that violence is also in Tommy Orange's book, There, There. But it's not as, there's a word I'm looking for, explicit, I think. I think explicit. that's the word I'm looking for. Explicit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, the violence is not quite as explicit as it is. Uh, the sexual content is not as explicit. There is reference to rape, but the the actual reading is not as explicit as it was in Sherman Alexis' book. But both those books speak to the reality that it, that does exist. And and Miss Rachel's right that that reality exists in other cultures as well. But a lot of it is. Okay. Brought to light more out of negative communities, the negative, the negative impression. Thank you so much, Lynette. And let's go ahead and go back to Debbie. Debbie, I'd like to have you give us the last word for today's conversation. We've got about a minute before we have to wrap up the show. But I, I want to ask you, this whole issue of, of banning books, especially those written by Native authors, do you feel that's reached a point of crisis now? Uh I don't know how to characterize it, Sean. It's it's disheartening to me that we have many more books by Native writers today than we've ever had. Native kids love them. They're winning awards, and they're they're under threat. The they affirm our existence as people, as families, as communities, as nations, and there's an effort to try and stop that. And it, that's yeah. So yes, it is kind of a crisis. Well, folks, it's been a really, really enlightening conversation, learning more about books, books that are deemed problematic, books that are deemed inappropriate, books that are deemed offensive. I know I learned a lot on today's show, all about different books, some of the books that I grew up with as a child, some of the books that I read to my daughter. Uh, interesting things to th think about going forward with regard to books and especially books that are written by Native authors, their impact, their influence throughout Native America. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Debbie Reese, Kevin Millard, Mandy Harris, and Lynette Dial for this timely conversation on the recent trend of banning books in schools and other venues. Join us tomorrow as we take a look at Elvis Presley's legacy among Native Americans 45 years after his death. I'm Sean Spruce. Thank you for listening. My name is Asad. When I was 19, my mom was diagnosed with colorectal cancer because she smoked. My tip is find things to be thankful for. I'm thankful she quit smoking. I'm thankful for the nurses who taught me how to check her IV and to manage her medication. And I'm thankful for every day we have together because nothing is guaranteed, especially for us. The people you love are worth quitting for. You can quit. For free help, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. A message from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Cachet. First baby, don't know where to start? CMS programs cover prenatal services. Enroll today. Contact your local Indian health care provider for more information. Visit healthcare.gov or call 1-800-318-2596. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. Elahqua.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.